Hello, my name is Maxine McIntosh and I have the huge privilege of leading our diverse data initiative over at Genomics England, which aims to ensure that genomic medicine really does work for everyone. This week, myself and the other amazing members of the Diverse Data team are taking over the GWED podcast to host a series of discussions around diversity in healthcare, health and genomic data. These short sessions will hopefully give you a wee bit of insight into some of the complex issues we're uncovering as a team, as well as hopefully some food for thought. We hope you enjoy them and we definitely loved interviewing family members, old friends, new collaborators who are all in some big or small way trailblazing in improving health and genomic equity. We would love to hear any thoughts you have on the subjects we're discussing. Our door is truly wide open, so feel free to drop me a message via the podcast email address, which is very conveniently podcast at genomicsengland.co.uk. Thanks for listening. So welcome to the podcast, whether you're washing your dishes on your commute or walking around the park or in the bath, your oral presence is very welcome. And what a blooming treat it is that we have uh, Dr. Anna Lewis joining us today. So Anna, you are a scholar of ethical and legal and social implications, also known as the acronym LC of genomics, based at Harvard's E.J. Safra Center for Ethics. You're also a member of the Genomes to People Research Program at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. Uh, and here is where you give a lot of your brain space, I believe, to thinking about ancestry and clinical implementation of polygenic risk scores. So just uh, to also deal with the awkwardness of the fact, I'm just going to read Anna's bio to her, but for everyone else listening, just to give it a bit more colour to her wonderful background. So previously, Anna was trained in computational biology, um, where she did a PhD in Oxford, um, and then worked in the genetics industry in the California Bay Area, well, like some, but definitely not your typical background for an LC person. Um, you say that whilst you're working in industry, you develop the opinion that working on some of the contextual pieces that wrap around genomics were the most important to make sure we really see the upside of genomics. Um, and also fun fact uh, that uh, you actually worked on the 100,000 Genomes Project. So um, we go way back in some way or another. Um, you do lots of embedded LC work where you're part of teams implementing genomic medicine research. And for example, right now you're involved in two projects that are returning polygenic risk calls. And you've also worked in GA for GH, which has been a topic of previous podcasts, in developing the first international policy for return of results. Um, so you've got an absolutely wonderful background and we are completely thrilled, delighted and honoured to have you with us. So welcome to the GY podcast. Thanks for having me. Lovely to be here. We definitely have like a slightly unusual setup here in the fact that um, uh, Anna is uh, at the start of her day in Boston and I'm off the east coast of Africa at the end of my day. So sometimes uh, when, when people record conversations at different ends of the day, we've got we've got different levels of energy. So bear with us as we as we wrangle through this international podcast recording. So today we're going to be talking about typology. And uh, for some people, you might think, gosh, that's not most riveting and exciting but for people who care about diversity in genomics you will realize that this is honestly one of the, the foundational topics that is causing a huge amount of problems and, and needs a lot more clarity in, in order for us to make sure that we've got an effective step forward in, in addressing some of these issues around diversity in genomics. Um, but Anna caught my attention a couple of weeks ago when I saw a preprint that she released titled Getting Genetic Ancestry Right for Science and Society. And it is absolutely glorious counter through some of the biggest knots affecting population geneticists in this space, and maybe those more widely who are less aware of the challenges around diversity in genomics. And it's really all about how we define, classify and conceptualize ancestry. And uh, I'm just going to do the punchline of this whole podcast, which is that I think you'll find it's a little bit more complicated than that. So I 
really hope that that uh, in every question and discussion that we have, you'll turn around and think, hmm, yeah, I was, wasn't expecting it to be quite as tricky and complicated as that when, when they started the conversation. So before we get right into talking about typology and diversity and genomics, um, how on earth did you get interested in all of this? What led you to this? Orientate us a wee bit into your very uh, colourful and varied life to date. Oh, thank you. Yeah, so in the rare genetics world, when you're thinking about monogenic conditions, questions of ancestry and population background, they enter they enter in there as well. Um, so, for example, if we're interpreting monogenic variants, um, we're supposed to consider the variously written ancestral background or racial background of the individual in front of us in terms of thinking about the frequencies of those variants. So I was familiar with some of these issues when I was working in the rare genetics world, because it's just really not obvious what you do with that. Like, how do you actually um, operationalize thinking about some of these things? And then when polygenic risk scores really started becoming relevant or potentially relevant in the clinic, it's just immediately obvious that you're going to have this huge problem thinking about um, questions of ancestry because basically every paper is going to point out to you differences in the performance of these scores that vary by ancestry. So I really became interested in this question through the fact that we had to deal with it if we were going to um, hope for clinical implementation of some of these genetic technologies. And um, I was lucky enough that Danielle Allen, who's the director of the Ethics Center here at Harvard, was also interested in these topics. And indeed, she'd started a conversation because a geneticist friend of hers had come to her and said, hey, Danielle, I'm getting quite worried about some of these developments in genomics. So they'd started an interdisciplinary conversation about polygenic risk scores and their link to ancestry. And then they'd identified this issue that we're all talking past each other when it comes to ancestry and from different disciplines, we're thinking about it in different ways. And so um, we wrote a grant together to fund some work um, to think about this in more depth. And that preprint that you mentioned is um, one of the outputs of that work. And the work, I should say, is very much ongoing. So there's many pieces of the solution of this which are still unclear to us and, and more broadly. Absolutely. And I think that certainly when I read your paper, it, it both stimulated lots of questions for me, but also, you know, it didn't also come up with all the answers for us. And I think that just probably just highlights the fact that there's just so much work that needs to go on to for us to start to really think about um, the inclusion of ancestry and, and how included in the way in which we include it in, in our research. So the way we've structured this podcast, and this has been a very collaborative effort between Anna and I. So um, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to go through a few sort of scenarios, quotations, situations, um, I, not maybe direct quotes, but proxy quotes of, I guess, questions and experiences that both Anna and I have had um, that have resulted in us thinking about some of the big howlers that happen in thinking about ancestry and genomics. So what's going to happen is I'm going to talk through one of these scenarios and then a bit like we're kind of some sort of multidisciplinary team talking through a case um, and it's going to kind of take us through why this is uh, a common question but also how to think about it and how to address it and and maybe some of the nuances and debates that this kind of question raises. So scenario number one uh, and this is certainly one that I think many people listening will be familiar with in terms of um, certainly what's happened over the last 18 months. So the scenario goes like this. 
I am a leading major academic and healthcare institution, and we realise we really need to take a long, hard look at how we use race and its link to racism. We think, hey, let's get scientific about this and only use genetic concepts, i.e. genetic ancestry, in the place of race. Sorted. It's objective. It's scientifically led. And we're basically no longer racist, right? Anna, why is this complicated, common and a lot more complicated than we thought it would be? Yeah, so I think you're right to point out just yeah that in the last 18 months in particular, as the use of race in clinical medicine or also public health in other other areas, but particularly in clinical medicine, there's been a lot of attention to the fact that we incorporate race in all sorts of algorithms which are in routine use. You know, this is just weird. It's often not not justified, but perhaps on a sort of descriptive statistics point of view, you do end up being more accurate across across different groups. Um, this is this is debatable, but this is an argument that's given. And um, and the idea is, is that race is being some kind of a proxy for genetics or genetic ancestry, as it's often put. And therefore, um, a lot of the answer is to turn to this concept of genetic ancestry, which is really just the pure biology and get rid of all of this other stuff that race is a proxy for. So there've been plenty of people that are making this argument that where we need to go to is towards some of these concepts in genetics. And what's problematic about that is the fact that across lots of different branches of endeavor, across clinical medicine, across pure genetics research, and also in the kind of public's mind, when, when we think about ancestry, we're often thinking about these big continental categories, uh, African ancestry, European ancestry, Asian ancestry, and maybe, you know, then it gets a, a bit dodgier, but may, maybe Native American ancestry. And these big, large categories bear a striking resemblance to the racial groups of old. And in practice, many people, both members of the public and people from sitting in academia or sitting in clinical practice, have a one-to-one mapping between European ancestry and white and African ancestry and black. And I've seen people slip between these terms just so, so frequently. There's no daylight often between them. Even if people, if they really like step back and think about it, then um, they realize they're not the same. But any nuance that you're getting from the kind of population genetic studies uh, swiftly gets lost as as these concepts travel to, to more applied areas. If when we say we're going to look at ancestry, what we mean is we're going to use these continental ancestry categories, then we really haven't made much advance. I was doing an interview with an academic recently and asked, you know, what does ancestry mean to you? And um, and he said, oh, I was going to use the term ethnicity, but my mentor told me that now we call that ancestry. So I think for a lot of people, it's just become a uh, the, the next language to use to replace some of these older concepts. So this is not to say that ancestry doesn't have a key role to play in how we think about differences between groups, but we're really in danger of of ancestry just ending up being interpreted as these continental ancestry categories. And there we're back to this idea that humans fall into one of these sort of uh 
small number of types and um, that has never gone well for us. I think that that's a, you know, a truly excellent point that, that uh, you know, ancestry is not in the common vernacular. But if we're trying to be scientific and precise about it, then I completely agree with your point of the need for, yeah, for real precision in the use of language. Because before you know it, it slips into strategies, it slips into talks, it slips into approaches, it slips into research and it slips into common use, doesn't it? That's right. And of course, ancestry was already, a, a you know, a term which has a lot of meaning even before you get to genetics, right? Like some people will interpret that in terms of their family, in terms of their cultural heritage, um, in terms of all sorts of, of different things. It's not necessarily related to genetics. No, exactly. So one of the one of the things you, you said there was around these pure categories and these pure continental groups. And so that brings you on to this kind of next scenario that um, was from a, a meeting we had at the end of September 2021, where it was the Gel Innovation Showcase. And we were talking about the new uh, programs that Genomics England um, uh, has been uh, leading on. And one of them is, is diverse data. And there was a really lively discussion around genomic diversity. And someone from the audience said, uh, it was a virtual audience, but um, they said, who even is genetically pure? Aren't we all a bit mixed? And it, you know, it was such a simple question, but I think it really gets to the heart of, of your point about you know, what does it mean to be a pure continental ancestral from a pure continental ancestral group? Yeah. So, I mean, I think there's a sense in which he's just absolutely completely right and has and has captured something. But there's also a sense in which it's more complicated than that. So particularly if we're thinking about these continental ancestry groups, the idea of admixture between those groups is not a solution to this problem. It's actually part of the problem, because then you're talking about being an admix of these otherwise pure racial types or pure ancestral types, which are very close to these to these racial types. And so often I think people think that they're solving the problem when they think, oh, but we, we calculate their percentage African ancestry. It's like, no, that you're still buying into this idea that we have this, these fundamental pure types that can then end up mixed. And what we've learned from population genetics, and in, and in particular, what we've learned from ancient DNA research, is that there just never have been these pure types. There's been so much, like the, the history of our species is of constant mixture. And uh, I think we often think, oh, well, there were these pure types until Europeans headed to Americas and until they forced people from West Africa to come to the Americas as well. But that's that's not an accurate view because we've been constantly mixing throughout our our species past. So so if we are thinking about, you know, continua between imprecise points, we've we've, we've kind of got no like fixed starting point or or nothing to kind of anchor us. So uh, one of the the pushbacks that I get is okay, fine, we're all on a continuum here, but We've got to have some tent pegs in the ground. And um, so where can we be starting from if, if, if our ancestral groups are even the wrong starting point? Yeah, so I think a couple of ways that we need to broaden our sense of ancestry. One is, is the acknowledgement, which we've been talking about for at least 50 years, that genetic variation is clinal. So it continuously varies across space. I mean, there is some structure to it. This is definitely not to say that it's a structural space, let's give up. There's, there is some structure to that variation, but it's much more interesting than just these big 
continental groups. And the other thing is that we all have ancestry from different points in time. And, um, you know, we all know that you can look at the time slice of when humans were mixing with Neanderthals and we can go to 23andMe and be told what percentage of Neanderthal DNA do you have? Like that's an example of a different time horizon that we can look at when we're talking about ancestry. And we can also look more recently than these big continental ancestry categories when we think of more recent uh, mixings in, in, for example, the Caribbean. That gives another time horizon that you can look at and say, well, actually, you've got uh, recent ancestry that we think is probably from Puerto Rico, say. And then, for example, in Europe, you can think of the European population wind the clock a, a bit back and you've got a confluence of three major populations which are which are coming together. So we, you know, science needs categories, I think, um, in many situations to make progress. Um, so the answer isn't let's just get rid of categories. The answer is like, let's not always use these continental ancestry categories. And then, um, yeah, let's think about different time horizons. Uh, let's think about finer grain categories. All of these are going to depend very much on the use case. But please, let's not, as we're turning towards genetics, as like the whole of biomedicine is turning towards genetics for thinking about human biological difference, let's not just use these continental ancestry categories. And I also think that there are some use cases where you actually can avoid categories. Um, there are some examples from polygenic risk scores where you can uh, do things in a continuous way without ever putting people into categories and solve for some of the problems that we have. I think we need an extra step, which is like, before we dive in and use those continental ancestry categories, it's like, well, what, you know, what else could be could be doing and what could we be doing and what might make sense for our uh, our research questions or or the the change that we're wanting to see in our patients lives or whatever it might be i think that's actually a really good point about the time component of it because you do need to have some constraints and some fixed variables and i i, I hadn't thought about time being a really important factor to, to consider when we're thinking about like what does ancestry mean and and that's a real function of how how far you're willing or interested in looking looking back Right. And I think so just to add to that, I think it can sometimes be really relevant. Right now, hardly anybody does it. Everybody basically just puts people in these continental ancestry categories, does their analysis separately. And then um, it and, you know, and then there's a danger because it's super easy to compare, for example, the allele frequency differences that you have a, for a variant that you've associated with some disease between continental ancestry category A and continental ancestry category B. And then it's just one other small step to um connecting to that to race-based health disparities but you know that's the default but you could also look at other time slices and indeed for one of the for the main GWAS hit for um COVID-19 severity um there was this awesome paper which shows well actually that's a Neanderthal variant and there it was kind of like a bit of a happenstance story about how they ended up identifying that but I think that that would be awesome if people more as a matter of routine were thinking about possible different layers of, of what's going on in terms of time slices. No, completely. And I think that's like a very practical, practical thing that people can, can take forward as well, because as you say, it's just simply not routinely done. 
so one of these scenarios is is close to home. I don't think this necessarily came from our conversation, but it's definitely one that's kind of plaguing the diverse data program at Gel. And the scenario is that we are seeing lots of new initiatives recruiting more diverse research participants. Uh, and someone comes to you, Anna, and says, Anna, my cohort is very homogeneous, you know, mostly um, individuals of European ancestry. Who should I recruit? God forbid if someone like me was to have also asked you that question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I have been asked this question. But yeah, just to put it put it into context, I feel that basically almost every genetics talk I go to and almost every genetics paper I read ends with a call for the need for more diverse participants in in genetics research. So it's awesome, as you said, that there are now um, lots of initiatives around this. But I think we have this issue that it's not really clear what is meant when we when we make this call for diversity in practice it often means diverse ancestrally and um and also in practice it means non-european ancestry but the logic doesn't really go any further than that and yeah i had I had a, a PI on a on a biobank say, yeah, yeah, Anna, who should I who should I recruit? Um, and she was just expecting some kind of uh, you know cut and dried answer to that question. But actually, there's a whole extra layer of logic that that needs to be in place for 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 uh, there to be an answer to that question. And I just don't think the field in general has that at all. If you look in in epidemiology, you have quite a lot of thinking around representativeness. That's just a huge part of the field. That's completely lacking in almost all genetics research, I would say. And uh, you know, even if we do try and aspire for representativeness, you will uncover a whole lot of extra questions about representative compared to what. Um, you know, I'm sitting here in the US compared to the US population. But hang on, we're going to go and justify getting all of these data from other countries um, off the back of this idea that we want genomics to work for everybody. So is it going to be representative compared to the US? Was that representative in which ways? And I think the danger here, again, if we're thinking in terms of ancestry and if we're thinking in terms of continental ancestry, then we're risking reifying these these categories, which look very much like race-based categories, and we risk not focusing on on other dimensions that that make a difference. And I think genetics has systematically done this, has systematically said we know the environment is important, but then has prioritised sample size over getting richer data. So yeah, I think the answer the answer to this question, who should I recruit? is you know well that's the beginning of a conversation where we then work out well what's your research question what are you really trying to learn about and then that should help direct uh who you should who you should recruit and i think another danger of this um of this kind of push towards diverse research samples is we risk just recapitulating a lot of the issues that that genetics has had um 
in terms of going after these more exotic genomes. Um, and this has not been a happy history. This has been a history of geneticists identifying that they want the DNA of a certain group of people and uh, and not thinking nearly enough about uh, returning benefit to the people who um, who they want to sequence. So the Human Genome Diversity Project is the is the poster child for this. They were branded um, by uh, the World Congress of Indigenous Peoples as a vampire project because they would, you know, what they were wanting to do was go in get what they viewed as this really important genetic data, but not because they thought it was important to help the people from whom that data came, because they thought that it was somehow pure, this gets back to our earlier conversation, sort of these pure populations from which they could learn more. And one of the issues was there's a lot of the scientists were kind of baffled why they were getting this pushback. And I think we still see the same issues of of well-intentioned genetic scientists wanting to get access to certain um, people's data and not not really understanding uh, the pushback that then comes from those communities. I think there's a really excellent point, and I think one of the the ways to close the loop, which is something that you know we're thinking a little bit about agile, and you know I have touched on a little bit, is around is is maybe that layer of logic. Sure, it could be research question, but is the way to help bucket that logic is to think about the value sets you're applying in terms of what's the thing you're trying to optimize or maximize or improve the benefit of. And if you're thinking about it in terms of value sets, does that help you then feedback in terms of the value to the people who you're trying to work with in the diversification effort? Um, because obviously value manifests in such a broad set of ways and to different ways in different people and to different scales and um, I think that thinking more about values underpinning some of these decisions would be a, a really really great way to to help at least make this a bit more um, digestible for us to take a first few steps so I don't know if you've got any thoughts on on the roles of values in, in helping us um, make some of these decisions or at least start the journey with more confidence. Yeah, I I do think that's a a great framework. Of course, you you have this. We we always have this issue of what what an individual values versus what a group values, and how you um how you think about those in relation to each other. I mean, in clinical medicine in general, we we try and um put the patient's values at the core. At least that's the theory that there are reasonable trade-offs that an individual can make about risks and benefits for example but it, but it's certainly true that different people value different things and this is becomes particularly true i think when we think about genomics so yeah i, I like i like the approach of the sort of empirical mixed with the normative and trying to work out how this can how how this can really benefit everyone so i think the ultimate um i think you'll find it's a bit more complicated than that is the fact that we have probably if you were to if you were to sort of number and count the number of times you've said an ancestry in this conversation um we'd be hitting the high numbers now but i think in the ultimate it's more complicated than this ancestry has a very 
complicated, complex, differing set of definitions, depending on who you speak to and probably on what day you speak to them, I reckon, as well. So I know that you found that even just trying to get a consistent definition of ancestry is is impossible. So what are we actually talking about? What, what even is this word ancestry? What have we been talking about for the last 40 minutes? Okay, so if you ask researchers, as we've been doing, what is ancestry? You get a wide range of answers. And that's also true if you restrict to just asking geneticists. And many are stunned by the question and they'll fall back on it's the output of such and such a method or something like that. But I do think there is a fair amount of alignment amongst those who think most carefully about genetic ancestry. And I'll refer your listeners to the only article I know that actually focuses on giving a definition of genetic ancestry. It's called What is Ancestry? And it's written by Ian Matheson and Alwyn Scally. And in it, they make the case that genetic ancestry just is this thing known as the ancestral recombination graph or ARG. Uh, And that's an object that describes the inheritance of each section of the genome of all humans who've ever lived. And an individual's ARG is just a subset of that. So if you think of your pedigree, that's the bits of your family tree that just include your parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, etc. Your ARG is a subset of the paths in your pedigree, because we don't inherit DNA from every one of our ancestors. So it represents all the DNA recombination and coalescence events that have happened to make your genome the way it is. So genetic ancestry just is this arc, this ancestral recombination graph. So of all these tools that we have, uh, that we think of in terms of genetic ancestry, like admixture and principal components analysis, these don't infer the arc directly at all. So it is the case that um, that the structure of this ancestral recombination graph is uh, driving quite a lot of the patterns we observe when we use these tools. So sort of at most, you could view the output of these tools as a proxy for genetic ancestry. Um, but all this said, genetic ancestry is the ancestral recombination graph. Notice what we're not saying, right? We're not saying uh, that genetic ancestry has anything to do with populations or any kind of population label, including any kind of geographical label. And if we do go applying any labels to genetic ancestry, we're imposing all this extra layer of abstractions and assumptions. And that then brings us full circle to uh, how we started out, which was the problems with viewing genetic ancestry in terms of continental ancestry categories. Like, first of all, because those categories are just a gross oversimplification of everything that's going on with this ancestral recombination graph. And also, as we as we mentioned right at the start, because of the resemblance of these continental ancestry categories to racialized groups. Um, and it, that makes it a dangerous, um, a dangerous oversimplification. So I think genetics, not in its overarching media proclamations about all being one human race and about there being more variation within groups than between groups, not in its overarching claims, but in its day-to-day practice of using these continental ancestry categories, that's where we're risking perpetuating the idea that there's a small number of biological groups. And that's the problem that we need to work around. 
And anyone's listening who is into polling their colleagues and members of their family or whatever, um, then definitely uh, take a straw poll of, of those around you about how they would uh, define ancestry because it's wild um, how even the most senior professors um, start to trip up on their words quite quickly. And I think it just demonstrates that um, we're all a little bit unsure about what we actually mean when we say ancestry. Um, it's a bit like when people actually ask me to define p-values. Um, you can do statistics all your life and then you can forget the most basic things in front of you. Right, so uh, obviously a lot of this conversation has been talking about just how uh, this whole topic is much more complicated than most of us were ever expecting. And certainly I think an appropriate challenge is that these are all very great challenges and great problems and great nuances and great debates to have, but uh, how on earth do we start to solve these? Or how on earth do we start to kind of cut through this complexity um, to make the positive steps that as you said in the, earlier on, the way that many of these talks and papers end saying a call to action. So practical steps, what what are some of the things we should be doing next? Yeah, I think we need to get some more conceptual clarity around ancestry. So that's something that we're working hard on and then use that to build up some some recommendations for how it should be used in genomics research and more broadly. There have been a lot of previous recommendations um, around the use of race, ethnicity and ancestry in genomics research, but most of them don't say much about ancestry. And here in the US, the National Academy is also going to be launching a, a task force around the use of race, ethnicity and ancestry. I'm really excited about the work that, that you are doing and that the Genomics England team are doing more broadly. No, really, I think, I think that's super important. And, um, for this extra layer of logic around diversity, I think we need to, you know, make it clear that this, that this layer is needed. And it's one thing to think about what that looks like for a particular research project with a particular, uh, aim, but uh, we also need to think about it probably in a different way if you've got a much more broad, all-encompassing aim like make genomics work for everyone. So, uh, yeah, I I applaud the work that, that you are doing on that. Yeah, and then um, connected to what we were saying earlier, making sure that genomics does work for everyone involves thinking a lot more about return of benefit to our research participants. And it involves thinking a lot more with the people who we want to recruit and who we want to help. And there's a lot, you know, there's a, there's a lot of moves towards doing community engagement, but it's hard. So we need commitments from people who fund these things to do this and do this well. Um, and it needs to be, become much more of an integral part of of how we go about doing our doing our research. Absolutely. And before we sign off, is there anything that I haven't asked you, which you're actually potentially itching to say that hasn't come up in our conversation? You know, I don't. I don't think so. Um, thank you so much for a lovely conversation. And I'm yeah, like I said, I'm excited to see what you all get up to in this space. Not at all. It's been an absolute pleasure and a huge thank you for your time and your thoughts and your ideas and 
exposing the huge <clears throat> complexities around it all. And even though we've certainly found getting this right it, it is a lot more complicated than we were first expecting, um, we're really looking forward to using you know, your work, the work of many of your colleagues um, to guide our thinking and to just definitely ensure that it's just a bit more progressive and you know it's where we want to be rather than um, necessarily relying on the structures and definitions and processes and institutions that we relied on in the past which I think is probably maybe I hope a helpful first step in us going in the right direction uh, so thank you so much for for being an important conversation starter at Agenomics England and I hope that um, if you're if you're on your morning commute you've reached the office now or if you're in the bath you become a wrinkly prune but either way I hope that by the end of this conversation you've, you've had a wonderful time and you've learned a lot and um, because I have certainly and I always enjoy speaking to you Anna so thank you very much thank you for having me Well, unfortunately for you, that's all for this episode. Thank you so much for listening to this discussion about the G word and for joining us as we meander through the highlights, challenges and implications of genomics entering mainstream healthcare. Remember, obviously, to subscribe to the G word on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. If you've got opinions on these topics, which you should, or if you have any suggestions for someone we should interview, maybe even yourself, then please do write to us at podcast at genomicsengland.co.uk. And remember, if you've enjoyed listening, giving us a five-star review seriously helps other people find out about how wonderful we are and how great the series is. And I'd really appreciate it. So please don't make me beg. And unlike Uber, I've got no way to rate you badly if you don't do it. So please just do. I've been Maxine McIntosh. I don't know why people say I've been. I still am Maxine McIntosh. See you on the next episode of The G Word.